Yes, good people, it's Francis here from Let's Do Humans podcast. This is just a quick announcement, just to encourage everybody here that's listening to our podcast right now, just to ensure that you subscribe and you follow us on all of the various platforms out there that produce podcasts, that's subscribing to us on YouTube, following us on iTunes and Spotify. I mean, follow us, make sure that you share our content and continue your support, that'll be greatly appreciated. That's Let's Do Humans, L-E-T-S-D-O-H-U-M-A-N-S, Let's Do Humans, one word. Appreciate all of your support. Stay blessed, good people. Perfect. Are you with your shorts on, man? <laughs> okay, you see my shorts? I thought you yeah, could... yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when you got up, I thought, wow, this guy's not even getting dressed for this interview, man. <laughs> yeah. This is like those typical um, work meetings where people are in their boxes but then wear a yeah. shirt. <laughs> it's weird doing it in your house, though, I think. I mean, I don't know if this is how you normally do it, but... Are you face-to-face? I rent in my house, but um, obviously... It's odd because I've got dogs, kids, people walking about, so it's going to be strange. Oh, no, I can only see you on this small screen, so um, yeah. that's why I've got my glasses on. But I might be able to do it without glasses. That's fine. Um, I should be having my glasses on myself as well, because I'm having a bit of a migraine issue at the moment. Okay. Yeah, I, I usually wear glasses for, like, VDU purposes, so, like, when, when I'm on the screen and stuff, because I spend too much time sure. on the screen. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm just holding, I'm just telling my son, I'm doing an interview with Freddie in a minute, so just, um, just telling my teenage son he's walking around. I know. And when do you want to start? Do you want to have a starting point or? or? Um, no, this this podcast is just free flowing. We we already started technically. Oh, you started already. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but first of all, let me just welcome you to Let's Be Humans podcast, Jeff. It's, it's a pleasure to have you on. I mean, I've, I've been enjoying your your work for a while now, so I'll, I'll be kind uh, of to speak to you. Well, that's really nice of you to say so, and yeah. um, uh, uh, it's a, a privilege to. Um, to be on this, and I love the title, Let's Do Humans, that's, um, yeah. it sums it up in a way, doesn't it, but it's also nice and broad, but but sum, sums up where you're coming from, but thank you, you know, when you do comedy, obviously you're doing it to make people laugh, Yeah. but, but intellectually, you, you're sort of doing it for yourself as well, you know, yeah. this is my work, this is what I'm pleased with, so when people say, I like your stuff, you forget that that's going on at the other end, you forget that there's more to embracing your comedy than people laughing. People okay. are thinking about what you're doing, what you're trying to say. So it throws me slightly when people say, I like your work. or But then I think, oh, yeah, of course. So I'm not, you know, it's not false modesty. I, I do appreciate this. I know, Thank completely. you very much. But in, ter- in terms of your work, when you're doing it, do you usually do it for yourself or do you cater it to the people that you're doing it for? Well, well I think um, I do it for myself in, in, on one hand. Um, I think you have to do that. Yeah. And then when you take it out there, you you start to mould it and shape it depending on the response you've got. So it's it's uh, it's it's a bit of both, really, Francis. I think. But how how you doing though in general? Because um, obviously, as as we're all in the same situation at the moment, we're all in lockdown. Yeah, um, well, I'm, work, I'm unemployed, which is strange after yeah. 25 years. Um, oh, wow. So that's. Uh, that, that's an interesting um, uh, experience. Um, I mean, I think initially, I have to be honest and say, I didn't handle this lockdown very well. I think for the first two or three weeks, I was depressed. I was lacking motivation. I was 
so fretting over the fact that I wasn't being a comedian and I wasn't going out at weekends to yeah. do comedy. And I found that very difficult. And then what happened is I realized slowly that, that being a comedian, possibly like lots of other jobs, is mm. quite all-consuming. My whole life is dominated by the fact that I do comedy. I might only perform three or four times a week, but the writing process, yeah. getting ready, the whole thing, you know, what you're wearing, uh, your whole your whole identity is connected to the fact that you're a stand-up comedian. Mm. So there was a there was a short period where I felt I just lost my identity. I'm just a bloke now, you know, I'm just a, <laughs> an ordinary bloke. <laughs> um, and it, it's funny, it sounds pretentious, and I don't mean it to be, but it was quite a, a little psychological glitch for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened then was something rather marvellous, where I, I started to enjoy not being a comedian, mm-hmm. because I started to access all these other things that I used to be into, yeah. that have been sidelined, because comedy, comedy, comedy. Mm-hmm. And so most, in, like my wife and my son, for example, yeah. <laughs> Um, but but mostly I, I I used to be a DJ um, Easy. and I've been collecting music for since I was about fourteen. I can see all the CD behind me. Jamaican music I'm interested in, and I I used to play out on sound systems, you know, uh, uh, blues parties, that whole thing from the late seventies through the eighties mm. uh, up until the the sort of drum and bass period, uh, and even then I was playing in the reggae rooms. We started to get sidelined then. Yeah. Um, but 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 I, I shelved that um, after being in comedy, and my my whole Jamaican record collection of vinyl has just been sitting there gathering dust. Mm. A bit like you know those guys that have got a vintage car in their garage; they're, they're going to get round to doing up yeah, one yeah, day. They, they, unless they, get they never do. And I what 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 the uh, what 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 made me uh, what, what the catalyst was? Um, it was a radio station that was advertising for. Uh, presenters, you know, uh, a pirate, not a pirate, but an internet radio station uh, that played Jamaican music as well as soul. And I thought, hold on a minute, maybe this is what I should be doing, a nice two-hour Jamaican revival program every week. And I looked at my vinyl, I thought, yeah, let's get back on this. So for the last two weeks, Francis, I've been carefully, I've been unpacking my record collection and it's been a bit like possibly when Howard Carter first entered Tutankhamun's uh, uh, tomb. Wow! And every every record that I'm picking out now is like a cultural artifact. Yeah. And, and, and I'm looking at it. I'm cleaning it, and I'm going through them individually and recategorizing. And it is a labour of love, and it's a new obsession. And yeah. it's great to re-engage with something that was so much part of my life and who I was before comedy. So yeah. at the moment, I'm, I don't even want to be a comedian anymore. I to be <laughs> some old bearded <laughs> reggae DJ. <laughs> Do you find yourself rediscovering your passion? Do you think that the comedy became work and you forgot about your true passion to begin with? Is that why you're probably enjoying this moment more? Um, well, I never... No, I, yeah, yeah, possibly. I think that's part mm-hmm. of it. I've never lost sight of comedy as a creative process. Yeah. But at the same time, when you do it for a living, there's a it's work as well. Mm. Maybe I'm somewhere in between. Maybe I'm like um, uh, like the crafts person, you know, rather than an artist or a worker. That that thing in between where it is art, mm. but it's also you know business. So there's a so you're like a craftsman 
Yeah. You know, uh, so you're still going about the art of it, but you're, you're having to think about it as a business as well. Mm. Um, as is as is music, of course. Anyway, so you know, there's always a compromise in art, yeah. isn't it? That the, 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 if you're doing it for a living, and I think that's been my. When people say what inspires you in your comedy, I think, well, if I'm not funny, I don't pay the rent, and I know that sounds <laughs> reductive. Yeah. There's a reality to that. So I, well, yeah. I, have to re I mean, I have to say there are people I work with um, who, who don't need the money, who, who mm -hmm. their mortgage is paid up or they've been around for years or their wife's got a good job. Mm -hmm. And I, I do notice, I'm not saying all people that have got money aren't funny, but I think I've always got my foot on the gas creatively, you know, because yeah. of that reason. And not everyone has that. And I I don't, you know, it's that thing about hunger inspiring me to be good at what I do. Mm, most definitely. Where, 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 did, where, where, where did your, where did you birth your um, sort of your love for reggae? Though? How did that start? Um, well, that I, I, um, I was, um, I was born in um, Camberwell in South East London, mm. and I lived for the first ten years of my life in Peckham, Camberwell, and Elephant and Castle. And I was conscious even then as a child of the uh, the attractive, exotic otherness of these groups of people that lived in the area. I wasn't conscious that, that what we were talking about were people from the Caribbean. But, you know, Sunday afternoon, going around to see my nan in Camberwell, there'd be music coming out of big houses. And I was attracted to that without even knowing what it was. But when I was around 14, probably was the big turning point. Where I was part of the uh, the late sixties skinhead youth culture that was going around at that time, uh, and and we liked reggae, uh, and I liked reggae, and it, it was around about that 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 time I would say that, that mm. I fell in love with with reggae music, um, fourteen, mm -hmm. and have done been in love with it ever since. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not not to the uh, not, not to the point where I don't love anything else. You know, yeah. I grew up liking jazz and rock and folk and everything else. But reggae is the thing that, you know, really does it for me. Um, it must have been tricky at the time to be a part of that culture, considering that it was initially a... Well, um, it's, um, it's a good point, culture. Francis, because, it, 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 you know, my uh, listening to it with a, with a crowd of white, working-class, skinhead youth is one thing, but... Mm -hmm. It changed after a while, and um, to continue listening to reggae meant that I would um, have to be uh, going into areas <laughs> that you don't see a lot of white people. And I mean, I even remember going into record shops, reggae record shops, and then turning the music down and everyone turning around, and the guy saying, yes, can I help you? You know, yeah. um, as if, what's this guy doing here? And I spent Lots. a lot of my life being the only white bloke in, in a place, the only white bloke in a record shop, and certainly um, blues dances and sound systems and that whole culture. I was often the one white bloke. You always get the one white bloke. In <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was me, man. That was yeah. me. But, you know, um, so so then what that meant was then I, and, and I'm growing up, um, um, we're talking about the um, early to mid 70s now. So I'm growing up and going to school in Upton Park. So I'm oh, yeah, the, the first generation of really of of of, of Caribbean uh, uh, kids or kids with Caribbean parentage. You know, that are now going to school. So I'm growing up with that generation, and and you know, and so I'm coming into contact with music. Then you go to parties, and 
and it, and it develops from that. And in the end, that becomes your culture as well, I suppose. Yeah. You know? I guess I guess that was one of one of the beauties of like early multiculturalism, like and how 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 was the transition at that stage though in terms of like well I think um, my personal transition it was quite difficult because it meant you had different groups of friends mm. you know your so there'd be my white working class friends mm. that maybe they were part of my growing up gang there'd be my sort of white middle class friends that I'd started to meet through leaving home and living in bedsits and shared housing, you know, teachers and people that had been to university. Mm. And then and then there were there were black friends from work or through the music. So separate spheres in many ways. And I uh, that was how, how it used to be. There wasn't it wasn't sort of multiculturalism wasn't really a term in those days. Yeah. Um, so so uh, I mean, you know, maybe I was a pioneer of that, but I'd probably more a recipient rather than a conscious pioneer of that, just where I lived geographically, how culture was developing. You know, by the 70s, uh, um, a lot of uh, people from the Caribbean, certainly in, in the borough of Newham, where I lived then, lots of record shops I had access to. I mean, I, you know, I tell people now, I mean, in, in Upton Park and Forest Gate alone, there, there were probably six reggae record shops in in the mid-70s. Oh, wow. Uh, so, so multiculturalism wasn't a thing or wasn't a term possibly but it was something that I was living individually possibly without realizing that's mm. what was going on so so I'm not saying I was the first I mean there were people in the 60s of course yeah. but it's just your personal experience of it yeah yeah and and it wasn't always easy because you know it's not all it's not all dance halls that want a white person coming in you mm. know uh, there were times when when it, I'm not saying I, you know, I never experienced any violence, but obviously, you know, don't forget some of those those cultural those cultural events were, were set up because black people didn't have access to mainstream yeah. clubs, pubs, and so it became their thing. So for white people to be swanning in and enjoying it as well, I could imagine how some people might have a problem with that. But yeah. we got around that, and I, I think with the record shops, once they know you know your music. Then and they see you on a regular basis. And I always thought, Francis, naively now in a way, I remember being in record shops thinking, one day it won't be like this. One day, you know, everyone will be walking into reggae shops and it'll be a totally multicultural experience. And that mm. didn't quite happen, but I think possibly it happened with rave culture. Yeah. The thing I was thinking about that would happen, I think happened temporarily with, with you know, uh, 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 the Jazzy B, Funky Dread movement, Mm. House raves, acid house raves, that whole scene, that became very multicultural, I think. Yeah. Have you seen the, um, there's an interesting documentary which kind of actually like details everything that you're discussing right now. And um, I think I mentioned it briefly in our conversation that we had a couple of days ago. It's Reggae Britannia. Uh, yeah, that's a great program. It's, it's an amazing There's one or two of those, isn't there? There's one or two of those. Um, yeah. And it is, it does cover that period. And yeah. I, I watch that. Yeah, I do watch that nostalgically and think, yeah, I was there. That's that's my experience. Um, that's my life. So, so whenever I hear anything about Empire Windrush, mm. I always think, yeah, I'm I'm a recipient. I'm a yeah, I'm a beneficiary of the phenomena, the cultural phenomena of Empire Windrush. Um, mm. Can I just say though, it occurred to me because I knew I uh, know you have a, a Ghanaian background, or I don't yeah. know if you were born in Ghana or. I was born in Ghana. 
Pardon? I was born in Ghana. Born in Ghana, all right. So, so um, can I just say that, interestingly, there weren't many African people around um, on that scene anyway. Um, it, when I grew up, most, most West African people that you saw were at university. Yeah, you know those people that used to come over? Yeah, to study. Yeah. They never used to meet a lot of um, West African people socially at that period. You know, it wasn't as mixed in that way. Mm. Obviously, now there's there's more West African people than people from the Caribbean in London. Mm. I imagine that they they represent the most black people that are in in London now. But it wasn't like that at a time. Um, so that was different as well. You know that that came as a different thing for me later on, um, engaging yeah. with with West African culture. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I did speak to a, um, a a British black historian in regards to the movement and the difference in the movement between the Caribbeans into Britain and then the Africans. Because majority sure. of the Caribbeans were brought in by a windrush, so they were brought into work, so they became originally a part of the working class, sure. brought sure. to the country. Whilst the Africans then um, initially influxed in were um, here for education and other things, and yeah, so it was. So, so in, in that sense, then you could argue. I mean, don't forget there were African people here. I, I must just tell you this: what I remember in mm. in, in, in Canning Town, in Custom House, mm. uh, the 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 uh, tidal basin area. I don't know if you. It's where they have the uh, cable car now. That used to be. Oh yes, yes, yeah, I know that. Be called tidal basin, and when I was. Um, when I was living in Newham uh, in my 20s, there used to be a nightclub there called, I think it was called The Dugout. Yeah. Uh, and that was downstairs in Tidal Basin. But in the 1930s, the Tidal Basin area around the docks, of course, mm-hmm. it, used, it was given a name locally as The Dominoes because black and white people lived there together. Um, oh, wow. I see. Uh, and those, they would have been African people then, coming in on yeah. ships, settling in, in the locality. But... Like you say, generally, when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, most African people would be here for education or they'd be doctors. So they'd be middle class, middle class, whereas um, most people from the Caribbean would have been uh, working class. And, um, and of course, people from the Caribbean were were uh, employed here. You know, I don't know if you know this, but um, after the Second World War, uh, the government, it was part of the government's rebuilding program of Britain that they... Uh, they went to places like Barbados to recruit people for London Transport and the yeah. National Health Service. Yeah. There were yeah. posters. In fact, they paid for your for your trip. So, mm. um, so for a while, the whole of London Transport was run by Bayesians. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, I think then what happened is there were. When I worked, I used to be a window dresser in men's fashion in, in the West End as well, at the same time as I was DJing in the evening. And we used to get those oil-rich Nigerians. There was a period in the 70s where the only African people you were seeing were were, were Nigerian oil barons that were swanning around mm. Oxford Street buying lots of suits. But <laughs> gradually, you know, people from Sierra Leone, Nigeria, working-class people coming here to work, um, and and I would say that that was a transition that took place in the eighties and nineties more. That's quite interesting to say that because um, my 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 grandfather actually came to the UK to study around the eighties. I think okay. he, spent, he was an engineer and he spent some time in Russia and then he came over to the UK for a short period of time. And he said well, that was wrong for for yeah. That. That, that I mean, of course, um, a lot of people don't realize about the historical relationship between Ghana and Russia. 
um, uh, that uh, uh, Russia was involved in financing uh, Ghana. There was a big uh, educational uh, um, partnership, mm. and lots of people from Ghana were going to um, were, were going to Russia. You know, uh, so there would be a period, a little multicultural period around Moscow, where there'd been these, yeah. these marriages and these mixed race kids growing up as as Russians yeah. with a Ghanaian background. That was in Kuru, uh, 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 Kwame Nkrumah, is that? I think that's who the, yeah. the president was during that that period. So there, there was a big, yeah, that was a big thing. Um, that mm. was, um, yeah, yeah, that was that was a good time. You know, I, you know, I embraced all of that. So I'm so blessed, really, to have grown up in that period where that was going on, and and I sought it out because I suppose don't forget there are still people growing up with it that are rejecting it and don't want it but i always thought well there's some, yeah. there's some good stuff going on here I that balance though being in the middle so being of a white person who's embracing this new culture and also having maybe white friends that are not embracing it how do you, how do you find yourself being well stuck? that's tricky um i mean yeah uh, that i was in that world where that was going on and don't forget of course there were there were you know it wasn't just a black white thing there were you know Ghanaian people not embracing Nigerian people, and yeah. uh, I suppose there was that racism from from people from the Caribbean about African people as well. Um, mm. So there are lots of different political positions people were taking up, often out of ignorance, mm. uh, because you know people from the Caribbean didn't want to be seen as being African. They 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 saw African people in the same way that that the English people saw them, possibly you mm. know as, as as backward and native and from the jungle, uh, and actually, um, you know, I remember uh, there, there was a there was a, a derogatory term for African people that Caribbean used to use, boo boo. Yeah, well, I mean, I got we got that quite yeah. in secondary school, funny enough. So that that, that, that that I think it's only recently that's died out because when I was in secondary school, that was still a heavily used term. Yeah, um, sorry, I didn't quite catch that last comment no, I said I said that's a heavily used term even when I was in secondary school so I when think I was around was it yeah yeah I think it's only it's in the around, my god it's still around look yeah, of course now of course 10 years maybe it's, it's, it's faded away but when I was in secondary school it was still very prevalent yeah yeah that that's um that's interesting of course you had the other phenomena of um when when Jamaican popular culture was dominant with black youth in in the 70s in this country mm-hmm. of course not everyone came from Jamaica there were people from there were black kids who, whose parents were African, but uh, they would have still embraced uh, Jamaican popular culture. There were kids whose parents were from small islands. But Jamaican popular culture had an identity, you know, um, uh, uh, it, and, and it had a, a political consciousness to it, a black political consciousness. So maybe even if you were a teenager, I mean, one of my friends at the time, his, his parents were, were Creole from, from Sierra Leone. But you would have thought he was Jamaican, uh, mm. but he wasn't hiding his Africanness. It mm. was there. And then, of course, you had that other period where, where young black guys were locking up and embracing Rastafari. Mm. Uh, and, and so then it became sort of hip and trendy to have a African parents within that scene. Yeah. So you were you were from the motherland. So yeah. lots of confusion, lots of mixed positions, depending on where you are geographically and when, when it is historically I yeah think. most definitely i mean personally that's something that i experienced um, in secondary school um it was this phase whereby um some africans um they they, they didn't know where they stand they didn't know where they stood in terms of like the popular culture so they tried to more identify with the caribbean side of 
Feet. Of course, and, of course. Um, but I don't think there's a force. Many I don't feet. think there's a force engagement. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I identified with Jamaican popular culture, and I'm white, and I saw mm-hmm. it as a, an alternative to the to what was going on in my life. And I, I don't think that's a false identity at all. I, I think that's totally um, acceptable. I mean, musically and, 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 and culturally, in the 70s and 80s, uh, if you were a black uh, male. You, in a way, had two options. One, which was to be on the reggae scene, the sound system scene, that, that, that you know, and identify with Jamaican popular culture. But then there was the soul scene, the funk scene, the club scene, where you're identifying with American culture. Mm. And they, they, you could have two teenage boys in one family, both of them embracing those two completely different journeys and different yeah. musics and, and not even coming together but uh, you know i don't know if you know about that as well yeah. and, and the images are quite clear as well in terms of like the visual representation of what culture you you, you were part of during that time so for well, like for instance the way they dress the way they look the way they talked and and certainly. how to look fit into all of that um yeah certainly um uh, fashion is very much part of, of yeah. identity of course uh, and displaying your identity mm. um and yeah, I mean, you're make you're, you're reminding me of the um, the Jerry Curl period, the curly <laughs> yeah. perm period, where yeah. you know guys were having their hair permed by their, their wives or sisters in in the in the kitchen of the tower block that they lived, uh, and then other guys were you know getting their hair locked up and going in that direction. Yeah, you know, and uh, you know, a lot of that is about uh, you know symbolic display, symbolic resistance, and obviously. If you were a reggae person, you were you were you were looking to look more militant as well, weren't you? It came across as a more militant uh, look, a more anti anti white society. You're mm. Listening to music about repatriation and, and militancy, whereas the soul scene was probably more acceptance of the status quo, um, wasn't it? You know about having fun, having having you know having a good time, mm. uh, and and I wonder if. Those two separate groups were also getting into different work areas. Uh, their whole engagement with being British uh, mm. was different. Um, certainly, if you were the um, the one black kid in a village, mm. you probably would have gone down the soul road, you know? Without, you could show off, considered you could show off with your dancing. <laughs> 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 yeah, a lot of that. I know a few guys like that who quite enjoyed being, being in that position. You yeah. Know? Um, do, do, at what point do you think so I know initially when it started it must have been sort of like slightly divisive in terms of this new loud and and and, and external sound but at what point do you think it became it, it helped unify the, the culture and do you think it did help unify the culture at any point what de- define did you say define so, my uh, culture no so what point did it unify so what point did the character uh, for me personally in yeah well I think um you see what happened with uh, with Jamaican music uh, after the early seventies when it had been very popular in this country. I don't know if people realise, but um, there were lots of hit records in in seventy seventy one. You know, mm. groups like Toots and the Maytals, mm. Jimmy Cliff, uh, John Holt. These were big crossover artists that were embraced by lots of white working class people at parties. Mm. Uh, uh, and there were more people than me going out to blues dances more women of course than men because mm. uh, they had another agenda <laughs> uh, 
but but um i uh, and then what happened after that period is jamaican music you know dance hall culture started and the, the embracing of rastafari so the music became more militant uh, and so in some ways would have um, a lot of white people would have not uh, not been into that they wouldn't have recognized that wouldn't have understood that um so there was that tricky period i i, I don't know for me um i don't know i mean i I guess um, in my 20s, really, it's also about you personally feeling comfortable with it and it mm. not feeling odd. You know, I I mean, even when I was at school, I was at Lister School, which which is in the same area that we both grew up. I don't know if your listeners know we both come from the same area, but in yeah. different time periods. But I was at Lister School in, in Upton Park. And I remember taking it was, it was the first LP I ever bought. It was a Lee Perry LP, uh, 1969. And I remember taking it into school for the school social and when it was my turn to put a record on, I put that on and had to take it off because no one accepted it. So there was a, a lot of that going on, you know. Um, but I, I, th- I think the 80s was probably when when everything settled down. You know, I had found myself, I was older. I didn't need to rely on friends or groups. I was just making my own way. And then, of course, I was in relationships with with um with black girlfriends so now uh, it's just a natural everyday thing um and um, you know is that is that answer your question or, yeah it definitely does i mean to me it's, it's amazing how um like music shapes culture and i think every every generation have their own little musical journey because the same way that you had your musical journey and experience within the caribbean culture and reggae music i think to, in my generation it was more um grime so when grime first started, it was a threat to the society. It was it was a it was a reflection of um, um, young black people's experience within oh. the society, and it was the loud, the brash, the 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 outspoken sound of that generation. And I sure. think it had a similar journey in terms of it, it integrating that into popular culture and being ex- accepted or creating a space for ourselves. So I, I yeah, think, yeah. I think um, I don't know if I'm, this is the right comment to make if it's relevant to what you're saying, but I think things start out in a subcultural way, like crime, which of yeah. course is is heavily influenced by uh, Jamaican music that's gone oh, on hey. before. In fact, I was listening to uh, some some of the old uh, uh, fast chat DJs from Saxon Sound System, people like Smiley Culture, the other day, mm. and. Wow, it sounds like grime. Grime, yeah. that whole chat style comes directly from that. So yeah. grime is still part of that uh, London, Jamaican, whatever, and now African uh, evolution of music. But um, I think things start out as subcultural. And of course, in capitalism or, or commercially, they get swallowed up, uh, swallowed up by the mainstream. So mm. uh, now, I mean, you know, Stormzy... Mm. is is a a national treasure now and who would have thought when grime started that any of the acts that are part of this genre would go on to be at glastonbury or be on tv Mm. you know he might as well be on the on the royal variety performance it would be acceptable now so um yeah yeah and i wonder i wonder what 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 i don't know you see it's not always the same though i don't think it just carries on the same because there are other powers that influence it so so for example uh, social media i mean i don't know the yeah. way that social media works with young people and music now um you, people access music on their phones now and uh, one of the differences 
I don't want to be romantic or nostalgic, but I lived in a world where you went to someone's house and they played you their music while you were there. And you thought, wow, this, that, or you took your music around and had little clashes with them on the decks and it was, and it was a very uh, physical group meeting thing. And I, I don't know if that goes on there. I wonder if people share their music online. And, it's, uh, it's very different. That's the big difference. Very different, yeah, because the human contact side of it is, is, is kind of being cut off by social media because now yeah. you have to make the music at home and distribute it from home without having to physically meet up with someone. Because it was the same when I was growing up. We, we, had to, we went to um, record stores down out in Bow and stuff like that to, to pick up sure. the grime track that was out. Yeah, well, Roman Road used to have a big shop, didn't it? Um, yeah. I remember buying early. I remember buying, this is before, I mean, this is, before the music got called grime, the term grime was being used by some DJs while they were chatting. I, I've got a, it was, I think it's a CD I bought. I can't remember who it is. And he's talking, he's going, yeah, yeah, just loving some of this grimy kind of stuff. And it was the beginnings of the term being used. It wasn't used for the genre. It was um, a type of drum and bass, a late drum and bass, but yeah. it, it became so. Uh, but yeah, I... I I think it's great that you can access music through through uh, uh, modern technology. You can access almost any music that's ever been made. But mm. I think you're right that hanging out, hanging out in, with groups of people, putting music on the decks, you bringing your music, it's your turn, turning mm. other people on to music they've never heard before. That possibly doesn't go on anymore uh, yeah. with young people. It's very different. Um, so as, as a white DJ at the time, do you, did you find yourself in a battle of being called maybe like a cultural appropriator? Well, that term had never existed in, in, in those days. They create so many um, different terms for I everything. Think, um, I think when it comes to music, if a bit like Rodigan, really, once people know you know what you're yeah. talking about and they can see your show and respect, mm. it, it's it's it's... It's acceptable to most people, really. I mean, there's a used to be a bit of a novelty aspect to it, I suppose, the white guy on the decks. But um, after a couple of tunes, once people realise you know what you're doing and you know your stuff and you love it just the same. Um, but yeah, cultural appropriation, um, that's a tricky one for me, of course, because you think, well, where are the boundaries with that, you know? Yeah. And I think it gets called out and used quite a lot as a, as a, as a term uh, inappropriately and inaccurately, you know, where does that start and end? And it's funny because I, uh, I wear a lot of uh, African print shirts. Yeah, I was going to bring that up at one point. Dutch wax, because we used to call it Dutch wax. I don't know if it's still Dutch wax. Yeah. Um, and I, um, and I was walking down the street on my way to a gig, and uh, a West African guy stopped me. He went, "Hey," he was wearing a suit. Yeah, and he, he went, "Hey, you're in a shirt from my country," and I went, "So are you." <laughs> um, so, so you know, I could turn it around and go, what are you doing wearing our clothes, man? Yeah, you know? yeah. So, it's a tricky one. Obviously, there is cultural yeah. appropriation, uh, yeah, but it's, that's a tricky, it's a tricky term. That, that term, yeah. Me personally, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the term because I think it's, be, it's become weaponized. And everything now yeah. in culture has become political and weaponized. I, yeah. I, I think a lot of um, majority of people that enjoy other cultures, it, to me, is more of a sign of, choose and appreciation for someone else's culture yeah and that's yeah. how it should be culture is supposed to be shared and we're supposed to yeah. show respect to each other's various cultures because that, that's how you create a truth in essence but if you uh, keep i agree with you Francis. i agree with you uh, and that, i mean that's what culture is yeah. certainly in london 
I mean, that's what it's probably been for 2,000 years since the Romans were here. Don't forget, the Romans, you know, brought African people with them. The Romans weren't from Rome. They were from all over the world. Yeah. And there were Af we, we had an emperor. We had an African emperor in this country years ago. It was a Roman emperor. So he was the emperor over us as well, because it was still part part of, of, of uh, the Roman colony. So African people, have, people from the African continent have lived in, in this country for many years. Um, so, you know, uh, cultural... Pro I mean, and then what happens, Francis, of course, is what was once otherness and different to you becomes your culture. I mm. mean, you know, once you... Once you have a, a, a you know, once you have a, a, an African wife, you eat an African food every day. You, you know, all of this stuff just becomes part of who you are. So mm. there's no way you think you're appropriating anything. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine now not, you know, living in in a in a strictly English environment where that's not going on. It would just mm. just be foreign to me now. And I, maybe you have to earn it a bit maybe I'd be prepared to go as far as to say you have to earn it before it, you know, so that it's not cultural appropriation, but. Um, and, and, I, and I've always had the issue with um, judging people for their intention, because you can never measure someone's intention. I think it's one of those things. It's like, you can put a label on someone, but you don't really know their true intention. They might have great intentions for what they're doing, but because of your labeling, you're, you're, you're kind of dismissing that whole idea and concept. And I'm, I'm, that's one of the reasons why I just can't really um, subscribe to certain terminologies because I think they're, they're more destructive than they do good, especially in the, in the current environment that we live in and with what's going on and everything else. It's, it's, mm. Yeah, yeah, it's I agree. Terrible. I agree. You're right. It's a weapon. It's aggressive. It's a term that's aggressive. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I agree. I agree. But, but I mean, yeah, yeah. Cultural appropriation. That, that's, that's a term I hadn't heard until fairly recently, actually. Yeah, I mean, uh, is a is a more of a recent political term, and uh, yeah, a, I mean, at what point, you know, what, what, I mean, obviously, we could find an example of of that, uh, but at the same time, um, sometimes they're the early stages of of interaction, aren't they? The not yeah. getting it quite right, or, or you know, being a bit obvious with it is probably early days for someone. But I mean, you know, boy, someone's come around to my house and go, "Well, look at all this music, man." That, that's cultural appropriation. That should be in a Jamaican person's house. You know, it can, yeah. can get silly, but um, yeah, most definitely, most definitely. And um, you're 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 married African, aren't you? How, how, how? Well, my um my my wife is from Sierra Leone. Yeah, oh, she's yeah. Uh, from Sierra Leone. Yeah. We've been together for um, it's probably about thirty five years actually. Oh, wow. uh, longer than I've been born. <laughs> yeah, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do a joke. You know, I do. <laughs> it's funny because. We're going to get on to political correctness and comedy at some point in this conversation, aren't we? I, I, yes, I yeah, can't, but let me instigate it by 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 saying um, uh, 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 I don't think I'm I'm politically incorrect. Actually, I think I skirt the borders, um, uh, and I think um, what it is is um, I deal with familiarity. So, for example, let's say if you were a comedian, uh, you couldn't make the same jokes that you could make at home about, say, you know, Nigerians or other groups, ethnic groups of Ghanaians, because it's yeah. familiarity and it's allowed and it, it might be spot on with a stereotype. Um, so I really, I think I, I, I think that's where I am with my comedy. So, for example, I have a, because I'm, I'm partially deaf and I, 
I have a throwaway joke about um, <laughs> only people in London get this, but so I go, yeah, sorry, I've got hearing aids. I'm a bit deaf because I've had a Nigerian wife for 30 years. And <laughs> black people laugh at that. White people are not sure if They're that's not allowed. Awful, not uh, and then, you see, that's about familiarity. And I don't mind doing it. I know it's a bit mischievous. Mm. It's not, there's no, obviously there's no no uh, intent, bad intention there, but it's mm. mischievous. But then if I was with an African audience, mm. I would add to that, say, for example, I go, yeah, Yoruba. You know how loud they can be. And that would get a laugh because yeah, it, it's, it's about familiarity and I'm allowed to do that. I'm allowed to get away with that. It would be very different if I was a white comedian going, Africans, they're effing loud, aren't they? Why don't they shut up? See, that's, and I think that's what people think I'm doing sometimes. Mm. And I think people think that I'm not politically correct, but I am. I mean, mm. I'm probably the most politically correct comedian on the circuit, but it, but I think people think, hold on, and they're not sure. Hold on, is that okay for him to say that? Yeah. Um, but, but I police, I mean, I haven't got a problem with political correctness. I'm yeah. a politically correct guy. Uh, mm. I, I, who's got a problem with political correctness? I've never heard a black person complain about political correctness. You know, mm. I've never heard, I've never had it, anyone come up to me in a wheelchair and go, this political correctness has gone mad. You know, you didn't even do any spastic jokes. I never get, the only people that seem to complain about political correctness to me are white people, yeah. um, middle class, men, heterosexual, able-bodied, privileged people yeah. who see political correctness as, as something that's imposed on them, mm. that's, that's, oh, that's, that's imposing on their freedom of speech, the freedom of speech to be racist. You know, mm. you can't say package shop anymore. Yeah. If political correctness gone mad. And so that's pretty much where I am with, with political correctness. I don't like the term. I think in many ways the terms really uh, sums up, up to me a group of modern liberal ideas that are about, about politeness, you know, and about just being nice and showing a bit of respect. And I haven't got a problem with that. I think the real problem is it doesn't really engage with the politics. I mean, we used to call it being anti-racist or anti-sexist or anti anti-homophobic. Now they call it political correctness, so it, it's a muddle and a mess. I think some of the issues that people tend to have with political correctness is when they feel it becomes legislation and you, you, you can get, um, you can potentially catch a case for it, that, that's when it becomes a blurry line. So at what point does it become a, a, a crime to maybe step out of certain boundaries of political correctness and yeah, well, I mean, I think, you see, I think the term is wrong. The term yeah. is confusing. Um, yeah. So, I mean, if we get rid of that term, uh, I just think if you are being racist, you are being racist, you know, okay. uh, and, and that's it. Um, uh, and, and uh, you know, if, if that's being politically correct, then I, that I'm politically correct, you know. Um, so, are you, I mean, I use that, that the Nigerian wife death joke is a great example of, well, is that politically correct? It trades on a stereotype. Mm. Um, but I'm the victim, if you know what I mean, in that joke. I think that's where it works, you know. Mm. That's why I can get away with it, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, I, I, there are comedians that, that feel compromised by mm. so-called political correctness. I think I... Here's the other thing, Francis, with censorship, because this is about freedom of speech for some people. Yeah. Um, uh, we had this conversation on the day that I, I, I floated this idea. 
There is censorship in art, you know. There's always censorship in art, what you can say, what you can't say. And I think if you look at the history of film censorship, directors work their way around the censorship and find a way to still make their point. And if I've got any material that I think people are not laughing at because they're offended by it, even though I don't think they should be, in the end, I'll just stop doing it or find another way. And I've got an example for you, actually. Um, I, I also got a little string of things I say about uh, having an African wife, and it's this, and it's I'm not get, I'm not doing this for laughs. It's just an mm. example. I say, yeah, um, I um, I think I've always been attracted to um, to women who come from a culture with a history of exploitation and oppression because I'm thinking whatever I do in the relationship can't be that bad, right? Now that. With an older crowd, that gets quite a laugh. They think, yeah, an older, clued up, mm. you know, self-confident crowd. That's not a problem for them. They, oh, yeah, I see where you're going with that. Very funny, a little bit mischievous. With a younger, studenty crowd, they would, they would, ooh, you mm. know, they would have a sensitivity towards that. Now, if, if I think that that piece isn't working because of that sensitivity, I'll just stop doing it or find another way of making the point. Mm. Um, you know, I'm not someone that's, that's, you know, you know, I'm, I'm in it to make people laugh. And I think there are comedians that are in it for their political agenda first to yeah. make people laugh secondly. There's a vessel to, to spill, um, political ideologies. Cause now, now you've got a lot of like com comedians on the left hand side of things and on the right hand side of things and, and it, all comedy is becoming very political. Everyone's trying to get their message out there, however slight they possibly can. And I think that's um, the issue where people are now, their ears are more sensitive to what the sure, community is saying. Sure, I think you're right, yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, the relationship between, you know, social media is an influence on everybody at the moment. But don't forget, uh, um, mainstream comedian. I mean, look, I consider myself to be a traditional alternative comedian as, the, you know, that started to develop in the in 79, 80 with Tony Allen, Alexis Sal and all those guys. And it was about not being racist, not being sexist, not being homophobic, writing your own material and possibly having a political agenda. OK, mm. um, whereas all mainstream comedy before, apart from one or two exceptions, all the comedians were racist. But they mm. didn't flag up and say, I'm right wing. They wouldn't have even thought of themselves as being right wing. But they were right wing. That mm. is, you know, being racist is right wing. So everyone is always political, whether they're even conscious of it or not. Um, now there's developments where people are coming out as alt-right. That's the other one, isn't it? The, yeah. the acceptable face of comedy. And, uh, and a club opened for these comedians called Comedy Unleashed, an evening in a club somewhere where it was for comedians who felt that audiences were becoming too liberal, too judgmental, too politically correct for their comedy. So they've decided to open a venue where they can go and say what they want mm. outside of the judgmental eye of, of political correctness mm. and modern liberalism. And I'm thinking, well, no, 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 that's not what our job is. Mm. You know, our job is to uh, entertain people. I don't want to go to, where, where, where's that going to end? You have to start going to special clubs. If yeah. my joke doesn't work, then I've got to find a way of making it work. And that's mm. what they used to do in the cinema. Faced with censorship, okay, we've still got to get this point across. The censor doesn't like it, but let's find a way. And I think that can inspire you 
to be cleverer and funnier. Well, that's that's true. So, so it's it's making you more creative because now you're having to think of more creative ways to get your points and your and your yeah. jokes out there. Yeah. Um, so, but but I have to say personally, I might be mischievous and I might be bawdy, but I know that I'm not racist. Hmm. You know, I know. Uh, uh, so so I confidently go out there, and even if I think the audience are responding in the wrong way because they're young, politically naive don't get irony, don't quite get get it. I won't blame them for that. I'll think, okay, this mm. is not working with them, then then I, I have to find another way around that. Yeah. And uh, Because I'm about making people laugh. I'm not about getting my political agenda across. Obviously, mm. there will be a political subtext in who I am. You know, I have an integrity that's, that's implicit, but I'm not there to make explicit points i'm there to make people laugh so it's a different agenda does that does that make sense that definitely makes sense yeah what, what do you think is the what do you think is the future of comedy though do you think it's going to reach a point where it is it's going to be very heavily censored or do you think it's going in the direction where people are just going to become more creative and no i don't think it will be heavily censored i think in america there's a problem on the on the college circuit with the tradition of extreme uh, so-called political correctness. You know, comedians are not even allowed to... I mean, I might might want to say snapshot a racist person in Mm. my routine, so therefore I might go, oh, you know, fuck off, you blacks, or something like that, as part of getting to a point. Mm. Uh, But in America, they're not even accepting that, you know, know, the college circuit in America... Uh, has become very difficult for comedians. In this country, I'm not finding that, Francis. Okay. I'm not. I'm finding generally people to 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 be cool. I'm not. You know. I mean, if anything, I I would say the, the general public are probably more the other way than politically correct. You know. I I I'm so I'm not finding it uh, constricting at all. Uh, maybe because I'm older and they think, okay, this guy's obviously being ironic. He's obviously having a laugh. But, but and maybe I I use I mean look once you've got a once you say you've <laughs> familiar once you say you've got a black wife you can you can go a bit further with your stuff then you think, oh this guy obviously knows it's okay for him to be a little bit yeah. on you know skirting the borders or, or I, don't, I, think I don't think it's going to I don't yeah. think it's political correctness whatever that means uh, or that sort of censorship I do not think I think actually it's a young person's thing with audiences really i find younger people to be more sensitive uh, and failing to grasp the points that you're making i think older people are, are pretty cool and i think uh, britain is a fantastic place to do stand-up comedy all over really i do yeah definitely i mean i've i've, I've read a lot in regards to like the issues in america and um, in particularly the college circuit and many yeah. people finding it hard to find work specifically because of that reason and in the college being extremely... Yeah, well, they don't... Also, they don't have a comedy club circuit like we do in America. Mm. Uh, Maybe the college circuit is the nearest thing to a comedy club circuit. In America, it's about getting on TV with TV specials. Mm. So they don't have what we have here, which is hundreds of comedy clubs in every city, in every town, um, because... Stand-up comedy is very much part of, uh, of, of British culture for a hundred years, really. Yeah. In fact, that's proven by the fact that wherever you go in the world where there's a 
where there's a, an expat colony, you know, like, like Dubai or India or anywhere there'd be British, Australian mm. people, there's always a stand-up comedy club. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I don't think, uh, I haven't got a problem with, with political correctness. In fact, I've got a problem with the people that have got a problem with political correctness, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I keep thinking about that as well. You made me think about that. I was thinking, I, I've seen all this before, you know, um, um, people complaining about political correctness, complaining about changing ideas. You know, what, what, you know, what, oh, what, the gollywog? What's wrong with the gollywog? Mm. Hey, you know, what, the packy shop, what, the black mm. and white minstrel show? I, mm. I imagine that was the same with what? Getting rid of slavery, that's that's political correctness gone mad, that is. You know, mm. what's it going to be next? Women voting. You know, it's the same it's the same thing to me. I'm generalising, and but you, yeah. I think you get my point. Yeah. You know, so you think it's, it's an evolution of us straightening ourselves out? Yeah. Mm. I think... I think sadly we've got a term political correctness and it means that you know it doesn't it imposes and t- and ticks people off rather than engaging with them intellectually to explain why they shouldn't be doing this but sometimes i get to the point francis where i think well look if you can't work it out for yourself i'm sorry you've just got to be dragged kicking and screaming into the 21st century if you still think it's all right to say i'm going down the chinko mm. or you know or, or you're using the term spade. I mean, look, you, I, I mean, people, some of your listeners, I don't know what, where they're from, what their backgrounds are from, but I've been doing comedy now for over 25 years. In, in some respects, I've been uh, um, enclosed in, in quite a privileged world. And I forget just how racist people are because I'm not, I'm not in, that, in that world anymore. Yeah. And f- what, four years ago, and let me tell you this story just to show people, you know, you talk about political correctness taking over comedy. Four years ago, I went to do a gig. It was in a social club, so not a comedy club, but the guy saw me at a comedy club. It was in Kent, so I think, you see where this is going? Yeah. <laughs> and I got to the door of the club. There were about four comedians who were also going to be on the bill. And he met me at the door, and this took me back to show you. I just said, whoa. He went, all right, Jeff, um... There's no blacks or packies in, so you can do what you want. And oh. I was, do you know, I was speechless. And I'm not often speechless. I just thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, uh, I just thought, well, I'll do what I want. Anyway, well, you know, whoever's in. Uh, funnily enough, when I got in there, it was full of blokes that looked like me in tracksuit tops. <laughs> However... I went away thinking, wow, you know, well, on the, on the way back, because comedians are very good at thinking of, of uh, answers in the car on the way home. You know that one? Mm-hmm. Uh, what I should have said is, no blacks or packers, hold on, I'll make a phone call, we can soon change that. Um, but it made me realise that um, there's, that is still going on. And, and, mm-hmm. and actually, for British people, up to a certain point, being racist as a comedian was, was part of being a comedian. All comedians had racist material. It was, it was part of stand-up comedy. Um, so, you know, I'm not worried about political correctness. I'm worried about the other people that are still there, really. Wow. Is that a culture that you think still exists? It's still heavily it prevalent? It still exists. It still exists. Uh, it's because I'm not interacting with it. But it still yeah. exists with a lot of white people, working class, middle class, still running with those old views. You know, once you go outside London, as you know, Francis, once mm. you step outside London... Very different world, yeah. Yes, it is. Mm. And it, and I forget that. Sometimes. Yeah. London, um, London, London. 
there are, you know, there are places that are different, you know, Manchester, Birmingham, where mm. they, but, but generally, you know, nearest, what it is, even in Manchester, you know, if you go down the high street, it's not like, no, it's not the same. It's not the same in that respect. So um, people just don't have that familiarity, that interaction. So they're still running with a lot of old racist stereotypes, you know. Mm. It reminds me of the, you talk, you're talking about the differences growing up. When I was growing up, one of the things people, we, you know, with reggae, you used to get white people go, oh, still listening to the old Reggie music, are oh, you? Yeah. You know, it reminded me of that. That's what, yeah, that's what I used to have to put up with all the time, you mm. know. Uh, but... But what I always say, and I was going to, to sound systems and, and dance halls and blues parties, it was a culture I could step in and out of. Mm. Um, you know, I could go back. So I was always conscious that in some way, not appropriation, but it was a privilege aspect for me mm. in that I could go back to the white mainstream world, whereas everyone else is still stuck with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, you know. Yeah, and I think it's, it's, actually, it's actually really good that you noticed that because... I think that's that's some of the issues that within the black community we have because we understand the, the 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 potential privileges of someone coming within the community and then being able to then step out and being absolutely fine where else they go was we well, well it's true uh, uh, you know uh, I, I, there's a lot of white people probably the majority of white people in this country that haven't got a clue of the sort of experiences people have because they're black or they're minorities. Mm. Small things, small things that you start to notice when I'm growing up. Small things like cars not stopping, cars speeding up as you're crossing. All those little small racist things, you know, the way people look at you, going for jobs. All those small things that black people are experiencing 24-7 that white people have got no idea are going on. Mm. Um, the other thing I want you to say about, <laughs> you'll appreciate this coming from a West African background, uh, I, when I ever do so-called urban gigs, which basically are black audience gigs, mm. um, uh, they used to be largely Caribbean, but there's a lot of African African or comedians of an African descent now. Um, I have a whole piece about uh, 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 giving advice to white men who are embarking on a relationship mm. with, a, with a black woman for the first time. Because there's always a, a couple of... Uh, of those relationships in the audience. Sometimes if there's a lot of them, if there's a lot of black, white couples, I go, it's like, it's like doing a gig in Nando's because I always see Nando's as the place that, that, that black and white couples always go to to be yeah. safe for their dates, you know, or that's certainly their first date. But um, I always say to these white men, listen, if your new girlfriend is African and, and you go to her parents' house for the first time to eat... They will put a knife and fork next to your food. Here's a tip. Do not touch that knife and fork. It's a test. You eat with your hands. Don't touch the knife and fork. Otherwise, you would have failed the test. Yes, yeah. So there's those things, you know. That makes me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> they're standing If you're being so fufu and then you're trying to eat your yeah. knife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because obviously they don't know. These, white, these poor white guys don't know, do they? You know. Uh, so once you... Once you Start eating with your hands. It's almost as if, yep, he's going to be okay in the family. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> super Have you ever had any white girlfriends do that? Um, no, they haven't actually been offered food at my house before, so it's, I've never, I've never had the experience. No. <laughs> I don't think my parents are the type to serve food to. Um, they wouldn't do that. Maybe it's an old-fashioned thing. 
Yeah, go for the old-fashioned jollof rice. I mean, I, I remember the first time I had uh, my a girlfriend, uh, Nigerian girlfriend, Yoruba. See, that's the other thing. People are not specific about their Africanness. Comedians are not specific. I, but I do uh, run comedy workshops as well, so I'm always poking my nose into other acts, uh, mm. other acts, you know, where I work with them, and I can't resist going up to them. I should just mind my own business, but mm. I can't resist it. And so many times I'll see a, an act who says, oh, I'm African, you know? Mm. Uh, and I said, whoa, you know, what, what does that mean? I mean, it's like me walking and saying I'm European. Um, yeah. So I, I think um, being specific is good. And so that's why. So so I do remember going around to her house for the first time mm. and eating. And I'd never, I hadn't even eaten Indian food. So there was this big pepper soup put in front of me. <laughs> and whoa, just from the first time it touched my lips, I thought I was going to die I was just going to die right there in front of everybody. The heat, never. My whole body was on fire, but I had to, I had yeah. to try and style it out. You know, my nose was running. <laughs> um, so I passed the knife and fork test, but it took me a while to get used to uh, the hot pepper test, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if they do that sometimes as well for fun. Most definitely. That's, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's definitely still goes on. How's the palate now? You can deal with the heat now. Oh yeah, of course, of course. That's that. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I couldn't eat without it now. Uh, yeah. yeah. But I'm, see, what's funny in our house? You talk about multiculturalism. Is my wife is West African, mm. and I'm English, but I'm working class English, and she's middle class African. Her father was a diplomat. Her mother was a lecturer at university. Oh. So, so really. There's there's comic mileage there that I haven't exploited in the fact that I'm, you know, my wife, be like in a way, you know, and and I'm the I'm the poor white trash bloke in the house. Um, so so Al Al any any conflict we have it'll be around class issues. It won't be around the fact that she's African and I'm English. Yeah. And in fact, more interestingly, I'm more Jamaican if, if than, than African in terms of my cultural influences. Okay. So. So that's another clash we have as well. You know, like I'm some sort of old yardy bloke. In yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and, and uh, she has dreadlocks, but uh, she's not a Rastafarian as such, but she has dreadlocks. And it, um, but sometimes we'll be out and uh, obviously a, a Jamaican person would assume she's she's from the Caribbean or Jamaican and they'll speak to her in Patois and she has to turn to me and say, what did they just say? You know? <laughs> so there's a great example of how culture works. Yeah, yeah, most definitely, and ah, and, ah. It's, and at its core as well, it's it's, it's a beautiful thing when we yes. truly and honestly accept each other's culture. Because sure. I think like everyone's working for deep down, everyone's working for like a true understanding, true e e true equal um, opportunity, true um, freedom of expression, and well, I hope so. Wrestling with it at the moment, I think most people are, apart from the people that that moan about political correctness. They're obviously. You know, it, it, it's relevant to that because I think, what's wrong with these people? Haven't you got any basic sort of humanity to just treat people with respect? That's all it is. That's all political correctness is. We used to just call it, just treat people with respect. If they're different, if they're minority, whatever, you just treat them with the same respect as you would anybody else. And that's all I think political correctness is. And some people can't bring themselves to do that, can they? You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll tell you where I'm bad with political correctness, though, is uh, I think it, it probably comes under the umbrella of political correctness, the changing pronunciations of names 
of historical figures. <laughs> so, 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 Bodicea, yeah, yeah, Boudicca, yeah, do I reject this shit, yeah? <laughs> the other one is uh, Genghis Khan, now it's Genghis Khan, so I'm always moaning. That's one of the things I'm moaning, who cares? It's Genghis Khan, who cares, you know? I mean, Bodicea may not have even existed. It's only, we don't have any archaeological re uh, uh, records of her. It's just, just a Roman historian that, that talked about her. And I, I just thought, I don't care. You know, but my son's growing up in that world. Everything's racist, you know, to my... I mean, the, my my son is probably... He calls me racist for things that... that <laughs> well, I said, well, really? So, so for example, uh, I don't know. You know... I like doing dad jokes with my son because yeah. he really hates them. You know, that's the whole point of it, that your child goes, oh, that's terrible. Mm. And um, uh, I mean, my lockdown joke, dad joke was, hey, Freddie. Yeah, that's his name. I think we should, at eight o'clock, big up all the key workers at Simpsons. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so he's going to kill me for that one. I, um, there's this old joke. Um, uh, it's a silly old joke about because I was going to the dentist and I said, oh, what time is it? I've got to go to the dentist. And I think it's 2.30, yeah? You get yeah. it, It's an old, silly old 2.30, yeah. Yeah. yeah? And I just threw that away in passing. went, Dad, that is really racist, you know? And I said, oh, wow. I'm being called racist by this whole new wave. of <laughs> it's, it's racist, but it's a sort of harmless, silly thing. But, um, yeah, yeah. Most definitely. No, I appreciate that. Um, well, be before I let you go, I'm going to ask you the most um, important question of all, um, which is, which is better, Nigerian or Ghanaian jollof? Which is better? Yeah, Nigerian or Ghanaian jollof? Uh, don't get me on the jollof rice. <laughs> let me say, to ease my way out of it diplomatically, yeah. uh, I think jollof rice aside, I'm not getting pulled into that, you know. I'm not no, getting pulled into that because... Because I've got a Sierra Leonean wife upstairs who's going to go, yeah, what about our jollof rice? Yeah. <laughs> I think what I will say is that both of those countries yeah. both have different dishes that are equal to each other. So, for example, Ghanaian uh, groundnut soup, yeah. possibly the greatest dish that ever existed in the world, yeah. but so is Nigerian moi moi. So... Ooh. I, I, to me, both of those dishes, I could live on forever. Yeah. I'm not talking about party moi moi, uh, or as they call it in Sierra Leone, olele. Yeah. I'm talking about in banana leaf, fresh on Monday morning oh, from the shop. You know, both of those dishes to me are the most beautiful thing in the world. So I'm not getting involved because I've got to walk the streets. Man. <laughs> <I don't> want... <laughs> no, I'm not going to drag you into that war. But um, what works do you have coming up that you want the people to know about? So, well, um, uh, obviously, I'm not, not doing any um, live comedy uh, yeah. uh, at the moment. And I don't know when we will be back because mm. um, possibly our thing will be back last of all, like theatres, because it's, it's mm. close contact. Uh, and, in, and actually, I'm so into my music at the moment, I, I don't even want to go back now. Mm. I've forgotten that I do comedy, you know. I've, 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 that, that's gone and I'm happy for that but but if people want to check out my comedy you know I um, actually this year Francis it's so funny when you're an older bloke and yeah. you've been a comedian for a long while that your work engages with modern technology I had a, a Facebook uh, clip from Hot Water Comedy 
Mm. Uh, was it that one? Yeah, and it got um, over a million hits on Facebook. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, and, but what was funny about that is um, the younger actually coming up to me going, Jeff, you've gone viral, man. You've gone viral. I went, I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? <laughs> I went, look, look, it's over a million. I went, is that good? I don't know. So yeah. genuinely naively didn't know about that. So that, if you want to see what I'm about, that yeah. that that's a clip that I'm that's representative of me, and it's it's called Jeff Innocent at Hot Water, which is a club in Liverpool, and the title of it is Racist Grandad. Yeah, um, I'm definitely going to put the link to the. Um, okay, uh, and there was another clip that the Comedy Store put out on. Um, I don't think you can access that on on Twitter. That got um, two hundred and fifty thousand um, mm. views in two days. I was sitting watching it, clicking up. And mm. I thought, wow, this is amazing. So if you want to see what I'm about comedically, racist granddad at Hot Water, Liverpool, Jeff Innocent. That, yeah. That's representative of where I'm at at the moment with my comedy. Yeah, I, I definitely think um, with everything that you do um, engage in, like music, comedy, you should engage more with social media because that is where, that is where the audience is. You are right. Um, you yeah. are right. I'm rubbish with social media. My daughter's in that world and she mm. keeps wanting to take over. And I think I'll let her do that when, uh, when we all go back and it goes back to normal. I'll let her take charge. But hey, by not doing anything, I've gone viral. So, yeah. you know, it's not that bad. Yeah, imagine if you was to do something. Yeah, 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 maybe I will. But I think I will be doing that. Um, uh, I'll be doing that when I get back. But at the moment, I'm a DJ at the moment, man. Yeah. I don't even want to talk about... What, what's your DJ name when you're sticking with Jeff Innocent? Well, if I do DJ? Yeah, what's your DJ name? Do you have a, do you have a separate... Oh, DJ? no, no, not really. Because, also, yeah, no. Yeah, because really now, when I, cause I'm looking to get on the radio, and it, not, not in any big way, just a little internet station... Mm-hmm. Um, now it might be that I've got a profile where I can bring listeners to that to that station. I hadn't considered because they've been separate worlds to me. I've yeah. never considered. But now, of course, once I tweet that or, or Facebook that, mm-hmm. there will be people who, who follow me as a comedian. They'll be going, okay, that's that's. So so I'll just be going as Jeff Innocent. Ja, Jeff Innocent. You know when people used to do yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Stuff? yeah. <laughs> 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 Kwame well, Innocent, man. Kwame Innocent. Kwame Innocent. <laughs> I'm Kweku myself. I'm, I'm Kweku. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm a Wednesday. Well, I might come up with some novelty name like uh, uh, what Jerry Rawlins. They won't know Jerry Rawlins, will they? Oh, That'd be a funny one. JJ Rawlins. Well, Jeff, it's Jeff Innocent all day long with everything, but um, check me out. Check out that clip particularly. Yeah. I don't know how many people watch your your thing. I'm hoping it's millions, man. Yeah, Maybe it will be now. Billions. That's what I'm aiming for. So soon it will man. Yeah, well, cool. I, I hope people find this uh, as interesting as I have talking to you. Yeah, you definitely. Know. I've really enjoyed it. I've, I've learned so much. I've really, really enjoyed it. I haven't it. been very funny, though. That's the only problem. I'm supposed to be a comedian. And a, uh, I mean, sometimes you have to leave the, leave the comedic side and talk about your true experiences and stuff that That's you enjoy cool. outside of the realm of comedy. Excellent. I love your vibe, man. Love your vibe. So yeah. relaxing. So relevant. You know, yeah. so it's been a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure, man. Yeah, we're definitely going to... People don't know. We come from the same area. Yeah, no, we're from the same ends, man. I mean, I grew up... New man. Borough of New. Yes, no, but I contest. See? Nobody contests